Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden, and joining me as tonight's co-host, NBC legal and political analyst, Dean Johnson. Cryptocurrency was born during the Great Recession of 2008. Later, with the stock market down, inflation at record levels, and interest rates on the rise, people asked, do we need an alternative to government-issued money? And cryptocurrency soared. But when a major platform failed, a a high-flying player has been convicted, and people now ask, has cryptocurrency's time passed? Dean? Good evening, everyone. You know, this is not the first program that we've done dedicated to cryptocurrency. But the other programs addressed a time when crypto was booming. But now what? Inflation is cooling. The market is stable. And SBF, Samuel Bankman-Fried, the former head of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, once a decabillionaire, is on his way to federal prison. So are crypto investors becoming more cautious, more circumspect? With FTX gone, are there more reliable, maybe more regulated exchanges where people can buy and sell their cryptocurrency? Is cryptocurrency dead? Does anybody care? Jeff? And of course, we want to hear from you, our listener, and our most important guest. If you want to join the conversation on this hot topic, our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. Again, that's 866-798-8255. Bear in mind that nothing we're discussing tonight is in any way an offer to buy or sell cryptocurrency or any security. Our guests are here to educate and inform, but they can't provide you specific legal or investment advice. The opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of NPR, KLW, our guest employers or clients. Wow, all these disclaimers, it sounds like a legal show. Once again, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Or if you're outside the Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. And always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. You aren't aren't limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. And returning tonight to help us navigate the world of cryptocurrency, our outstanding team of experts, Chris and Chris. Chris Eberly is an investor and consultant specializing in Web3. He has been active in crypto since 2017 and leverages his experience from Web2 companies, including Facebook, Netflix, Federated Media, and Mebo, Google, to help his portfolio companies and clients with their growth, marketing, partnerships, and business operations. Chris was previously the Chief Operating and Marketing Officer of Swarm, an Ethereum-based provider of infrastructure for the tokenization of private equity. He currently advises Yearn Finance, 
coordinate and Project Galaxy, Web3's largest credential data network. Christopher Cook is a principal in Murphy Cook, a law firm based in Burlingame that focuses on securities litigation, SEC investigations, and securities compliance. Mr. Cook's recent matters include litigation over cryptocurrency offerings, SEC and state investigations concerning insider trading, and accounting fraud. Before starting his law firm, Mr. Cook worked for the Enforcement Division of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in San Francisco, where he was a branch chief. Chris, Chris, welcome to your legal rights. Thanks very much. Good to be back. Good to see you guys. Yes, thanks. Good to be back. hold, Hold on, Jeff. We have one more guest. A legend in the world of crypto, he is known only as Redbeard. Redbeard is a founding member of Icewater Development Team. Icewater is building a decentralized currency that reduces volatility using internal markets rather than external pegs. He is also an active participant in in the LexPunk Army Legal DAO and advises several DAOs on issues related to decentralization. Redbeard, welcome to the team. Yes, Redbeard, welcome to your legal rights. Thanks, Jeff. All right. You know, as as our listeners know, um, I like to open up the conversation with a big question. And one of our previous episodes was entitled uh, after the FTX exchange and before FTX collapsed. We titled our show FTX WTF. And that's my question for tonight to start the conversation. FTX is gone now, but gentlemen, WTF was FTX. What was it and could it have worked? Was it necessarily going to fail? Chris Everly, why don't you start us off? Let's do it. Um, So... I'll say FTX is a a shame. Um, FTX could have been and looked like it was going to be a a really valuable like component of the crypto industry. It looked like it it had a chance to be this sort of I don't know AOL for for crypto in a way that could help onboard a bunch of new people into the space and provide this, this gateway into it, into crypto. Um, let's, let's, Chris, ex- let's, roll, let's roll back a little bit. Just tell us yeah. very briefly, what did FTX do? Um, FTX was an, uh, an exchange for, for crypto. So it's a place where you can primarily do two things. One, it was a connection to the, the legacy financial system where you could bring in your U S dollars into their, uh, into their, their platform. So we call it what we call a centralized exchange. So you move your uh, your U.S. dollars into their platform. And then once you're within the platform using their technology, then you can trade uh, your your dollars for, you know, for for cryptocurrencies, for Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or a number of different kinds of, of exchanges. And they um, they make that easy for you uh, in part because even though they're, they're trading crypto, they're actually not doing. Uh, they're doing transactions in their own little walled walled garden, which certainly has pros and cons as uh, as as we're exposed here. Well, I mean, Redbeard, I, this sounds like a great idea. I mean, 
one of the big problems with cryptocurrency that I see, it was it was so darn complicated. It was hard to buy it. It was hard to store it. This is where the FTX was where ordinary people could just bring their dollars and say, I want some Bitcoin. I want some Ethereum or I want, you know, a whole, whole portfolio of cryptos. So, I mean, isn't that a great idea? Yeah, it was a great idea. And they were taking a number of steps to make it more accessible and making more, people more aware uh, of what they could do. Uh, some of that had a lot to do with marketing. Uh, you may have heard that they, you know, put their name on uh, on an arena and they had celebrities, uh, <laughs> Seth Curry and uh, Tom Brady, I think, uh, touting their currency. And so people knew about FTX and they were starting to use it. It had high volume. It was there were aspects of it that were a good business model and they were becoming one of the leading exchanges of crypto in the United States. They were a competitor to Coinbase. Coinbase is a huge exchange and they're they're actually based in san francisco big difference ftx was for people outside of the u.s it was set up originally in i think hong kong and then they moved to the bahamas so they were doing that so they wouldn't have to comply with uh, u.s laws regarding securities and securities exchanges which i think coinbase has found are are difficult to navigate well, yes, Steph and the Cardassians, I think, and uh, Tom Brady was a big investor, his wife, uh, Giselle Bunchen. But right at the outset, let's agree that FTX establishes one celebrity as the intellectual bellwether of the Western world, right? There was one celebrity who turned Samuel Bankman Freed down, and we all know it was Taylor Swift who, when he pitched her, she said, reportedly said, aren't you just selling unregulated securities? And wasn't she right about that? It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? That uh, our uh, that Tw- Taylor Swift, of all people, had the wisdom to say no. Yeah, who knew? Uh, but yeah, there was a fair to say that there was a lot of what we call FOMO going on here with people investing in FTX? Fear of missing out? So what, I mean, but if you've got a product and you've got a lot of a lot of rich and famous people who want to buy it because they're afraid of missing out, I mean, that's a great idea. So what went wrong? I can start or, uh, you know what, Redbeard, go for it. I can see you're drooling. Do it. (laughs) Yeah, there were a series of events that led to the collapse of FTX. Uh, But at the basis of it is they got a little bit, they got quite greedy. And they took some of the money that people had put into their walled garden, as you said. um, And they transferred it to a sister company called Alameda. Um, And then Alameda made some very risky bets. And when those bets started to unravel, the whole thing started coming down. One of the biggest bets was uh, related to a stable coin called uh, Terra USD, which was part of the Terra Luna ecosystem. Okay, you need to tell us what a stable coin is. Oh, yeah. So a stable coin is a coin that um, is designed not to be as volatile as a regular cryptocurrency, and the main way that they do that is trying to peg it to the U.S. dollar so that one of these coins is equal to one U.S. dollar. Um, and if people start using these coins, they can benefit us uh, a little bit 
kind of like how the Federal Reserve can print money. If you're the one who can print money, uh, you gain some of the power that the Federal Reserve had. So FTX made a bet on a, a stable coin. That bet didn't pay off and things started to unravel. And eventually they didn't have enough money to pay off the liabilities that they had to their customers. So Christopher Cook, let's let's get into the legal end of this. Borrowing money from one company, one of your companies to help out the other company, that's illegal? It is when you don't tell your customers that's what you're going to do with their money. And you make you make the, uh, the affirmative representation that their money is segregated in over in FTX. And then you put in a, apparently a back door in your accounting software so that you can just move money straight into Alameda Research, which for those of us in the Bay Area is named after Alameda, the town right next to Oakland, according to Carolyn Ellison. And they called it research because it sounded more prestigious, according to her. So like, uh, but yeah, if you don't tell people you're going to take their money and do something they have no idea they're doing it with, it's a classic case of fraud. Yeah, and, and so this would have been illegal and FTX would have had problems even if they weren't dealing in crypto. I mean, if they had been dealing in soybean futures or port bellies or whatever, it still would have been a problem. It's still a felony to take people's money on false pretenses. So they were indicted, well, Sam Bankman Fried was indicted on seven financial related counts and then an eighth account related to uh, political contributions. And they were all one form or another of lying to people, lying to lenders about their assets and what they actually had, lying to investor uh, cons- customers of FTX, what, that their money was segregated and safe and lying to um, purchasers of of commodities, which are essentially contracts that they were trading, which were the crypto contracts. So it was just one form or another of lying. I mean, it, it, and, and false pretenses, taking money, borrowing money, et cetera, through a phony picture. Yeah, wasn't there kind of a, a cover for that though? I, Alameda and or FTX created a cryptocurrency, which they exchanged for their customers' money. So it's called FTT, right? Yeah. 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 That, and yeah. so when that when that had a high value, their assets looked good. And when people lost confidence in FTT because they lost confidence in FTX, it collapsed. And so but the big the big thing was they essentially borrowed nine billion dollars because their hedge fund, which was a trading company, and that's what Carolyn Ellison and Sam Bankman-Fried had done before this founding FTX. They they'd been traded. They were traders. That lost a lot of money, and they were concerned about its inability to cover its debts, et cetera. So they just borrowed the money from FTX without telling anybody other than the IT guy who helped them design the secret backdoor hole in their uh, accounting program, so they could just move the money from one account to another without anybody else knowing about it. So if they had got, if Samuel Bankman free SBF had gone to say Steph and Tom and said, Hey, Steph, Hey Tom, you know, we're going to borrow some of your money, but we're going to give you this whole new cryptocurrency called FTT back. They would have been fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just disclose the risk and then you're, you're good. Like we'll pay you back 50% return in a year. If we, if, if we're successful and we think we will be, 
But of course there's risk, you know, and then that's fine. Yeah, but if you don't tell people that you're taking their money, then it's a problem. Yeah, and, and it, it kind of looks like this would have gone on forever and, and everybody would have been fine, but SBF decided to sort of play a chess game with one of his competitors, right, Redbeard? That's right. One of the uh, competitive, one of the main competitors in the uh, <clears throat> crypto exchange business is called Binance, um, and it's headed by uh, a man named Cheng Peng Zhao or CZ. I don't know if I got the pronunciation there correct, but uh, we'll call him CZ. And SBF uh, started off having a good relationship, and in fact, uh, CZ invested uh, and and therefore held quite a bit of this FTT token. Um, but he was unhappy with how SBF was uh, competing in that business and uh, sent off a tweet that said, I'm going to divest myself of FTT. And that sent the cryptocurrency tumbling. Yeah, Michael Lewis kind of tells the story this way, that SBF decided that he was going to make FTX the law-abiding crypto exchange, and he was going to go to Congress and the politicians and set up rules, and he was going to characterize Binance as the villain. And CZ, who owned a lot of FTX for some reason, just put out a tweet and said, we're liquidating our shares of FTX, and that's what caused, if you will, a run on the bank. Right, Christopher? It was it was a huge run on the bank. So. That, but then that revealed the hole that they had taken money from customers because they didn't have if they hadn't they didn't have assets to to pay back uh, CZ's uh, demand that they you know cash out his uh, his holdings in FTT and that was that came out of the criminal trial that they had all kinds of deliberations about this and what to do that and that's that was all in November of 2022. And then Sam Bankman Fried did the one thing that I think former presidents have done is he couldn't keep himself off of Twitter. And he said a lot of things that he probably shouldn't have. So uh, I guess he shares that trait with some some other people. Yeah, so it is, I mean, I assume Binance is still in business. Is Are crypto exchanges still part of the wave of the future? Are we gonna, gonna see those continue to operate, Chris Eberle? Yeah, I think I think for sure. I think you know, the 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 Binance story is is definitely not 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 done. I know you know they and, and CZ in particular have taken taken a, a, a big hit, but they've um, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, um, but they've had they had enough you know a, a, enough reserves to, uh, to to keep themselves afloat. But you know, I think the I think moreover to your question, if you think about an exchange like like Coinbase, which which Christopher mentioned is like one of the one of the competitors of of FTX. I mean, uh, you know, the fundamental business model here is a is a sound one. Um, you're 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 providing a valuable service for people, as people have mentioned here. You know, we talked about in the past. You're making it easier for people to come do this. I think it's a it's a really valuable service. Coinbase does this really well. Coinbase was my on ramp to crypto, um, you know, nearly nearly a decade ago. And um, the difference is that you just have to be good good actors, right? The stuff that um, was was going on at at FTX that was done, you know in the name of crypto and done to profit off of speculating on crypto actually uh, had nothing to do with crypto. It really showed the, 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 
weaknesses of a of a centralized entity and the power that people have when they're holding lots of other people's money and, and are and are going and are going un, unchecked. So, you know, th- those risks uh, very much e- exist, just as they exist in in banks. But I think the 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 centralized exchange, I think, is is here to stay, and it's actually been awesome to see what. Um, what Coinbase has been doing, um, you know, really uh, openly battling there with the SEC, um, and you know, I think trying to be on the on the the, the right side of this. So, you know, uh, in summary, I think FTX did no favors to uh, exchanges or the crypto the crypto world overall, but I, I don't think any of it's any of it's going anywhere. You're listening to your legal rights on KALW ninety one point seven FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden, your host, joined with tonight's co-host, Dean Johnson. Tonight, we're discussing the complex legal arena surrounding cryptocurrency in the aftermath of the collapse of FTX and the conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried with Web3 investor and consultant Chris Eberly, Burlingame Securities attorney Christopher Cook, and a man known only as Redbeard. If you have questions for my guest, our phone number is 415-841-841. 4134. Once again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic or any questions related to cryptocurrency now or then. You're not limited to the point we may be in our conversation. So, you know, Chris Everly raises a, a point that we sort of alluded to in the beginning, which is the ripple effect of, uh, of FTX. Um, is crypto dead? Is it dying? I mean, in a sense, was it ever alive? Was crypto, was crypto created to solve a problem that didn't exist? Um, and you know, where is it going now? What, what problems is it solving? What can we do with crypto that we couldn't do with ordinary money? And I know this is a topic that's close to your hearts, fellas. So go for it. Anybody. So, yeah, I think that, you know, there are a variety of uses for crypto, but I want to point out three of them. Uh, one, which is, the most uh, famous example is Bitcoin is a store of value, a play, an investment token that people think is not going to be inflationary like the U.S. dollar. Uh, at least that's the idea. Uh, the second one is for uh, just an everyday transactional currency. Um, and the stable coins that we mentioned earlier are used uh, for that reason. But more in countries like uh, Vietnam or Turkey, uh, you know, in Venezuela, countries that don't have as much confidence in their currency often want exposure to the U.S. dollar. So that's kind of a surprising uh, thing about cryptocurrency is one of the main uses for it is a stand in for the U.S. dollar in countries that don't have easy access to the U.S. dollar. Uh, a third use is for what we call utility coins, where uh, people want to uh, use a coin to represent access to some kind of service or or other goods. Um, And cryptocurrency still can be used for all of those. Um, In the United States, where we have credit cards and banks and a very sophisticated banking system that allows us 
to get exposure to the U.S. dollar. And so the stable coins uh, are not quite as important in the United States as in as in other locations. But a lot of Americans, a lot of Americans own Bitcoin and other currencies for speculative reasons. Um, and there's not a lot right now of value, I think, in the although there's cryptocurrency as, as utility tokens, meaning representing some other kind of goods or services, it certainly could become something big. But right now, uh, we're in something what we call a crypto winter, meaning a lot of those coins have lost a lot of their value. Let me turn it over to Nathan from Oakland. Nathan, you're on the you're on the line. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi, um, I, I'm curious. So there there is there's some of this utility you're talking about uh, for unbanked people or people who are in places with they don't have trust in their currency. But I I wonder. Like the the sheer amount of carbon created by cryptocurrency, I I really I'm curious if that really feels worth it to you because um, it takes so much more energy than credit card processing or minting. I'm, I'm I'd be curious to have you speak to that. Are you talking about the exchange, or are you talking about the mining? Um. So the the mining, which I uh, I mean, in order to do the mathematics to process all of the transactions they're g to the unless unless i'm misunderstanding it maybe we've shifted away from like the bitcoin model but to to do the amount of processing needed to maintain these enormous ledgers we have so many servers running all over the world i mean it's as much energy as greece i believe is used towards cryptocurrency these days um and i i'm maybe there's advancements that i'm unaware of and we're using less energy now to do the processing but uh, my understanding is that we have so many server farms doing, I mean, the mining is necessary because it's how we process the transactions, right? I mean, I, I'm not a computer scientist, so I might be completely off, but I'd be curious to know if maybe I'm misunderstanding the energy use or I, I just would be interested to hear you speak towards the, the energy use and how that will be moving forward as well. Yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris Everly, can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. No, I think th- thank you for the call. I think I think it's a really it's a really thoughtful question. Um and the I think the 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 good news is that that the 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 carbon the carbon use uh looks looks way better nowadays than it did a couple of years ago, which is which is impressive given that there's just that much more going on in, in crypto. We actually did an episode of, of this show um some some months back where we talked about uh, something called the the merge, which was a a shift in uh, the way that Ethereum works, shifting from uh, proof of work, which is what which is what what you describe, um, which is a compute intensive, um, you know, solving a complex math problem way of maintaining a, a blockchain, which which absolutely, as you described, takes a takes a takes a really good amount of energy to do. Um, shifted into something called proof of proof of stake, where um, rather than doing this compute intensive process to maintain your piece of the of the blockchain, you're you're showing up and actually putting up your staking. They call it um, a, a very valuable chunk of that um, of, of that same cryptocurrency. And so, if you um, uh, if you don't do your job correctly. Uh, then you get what's called slashed, and you uh, you lose the currency. You're doing an abbreviated description of it, but um, so not all crypto has shifted to this model. But it, but Ethereum and what they call uh, EVMs or Ethereum virtual machines, which is sort of the the software that's used to create other uh, other similar blockchains, uh, does account for a, a, a really large percentage of the, certainly the innovation that's happening on, on top of uh, of crypto rails these days, uh, and that 
I, I believe it's accurate to say that the the energy usage by Ethereum is down by approximately ninety nine percent from from what it was in, um, in in proof of work proof of work times. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think the it, there's there, there's two things afoot here, and I'll, I'll, I'll really quickly uh, detail. One is yeah, it's still absolutely a, a really valid concern. I mean, that's the way that that Bitcoin works, and there are some arguments for why that makes really good sense. Um, and there are, I think, a lot of uh, you know, focuses on using renewables and these other kinds of things, but I think that's still, it's still there's a there's a that's still a a problem that needs to be resolved. I think it also speaks to the horrible like branding problem that we have with with crypto, where even though like you know the 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 shift to proof of stake has happened, like I would say um, most people in our you know our our, our caller was really articulate in, in describing this, right? And I, I think probably speaks representatively for a lot of people out there who are smart and paying attention and don't even know that this happened. But I, sh- I assure you that they know that Sam Bankman fried defrauded a whole bunch of people in the name of, in the name of, of crypto and, and kind of, you know, tarnished the brand in the in the process. So I, I think we've got uh, we've got some work to do as an industry to dig out of the sort of various holes that we uh, we find ourselves in. Yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, one side story on FTX is that it was heavily invested in a crypto called Solano. Um, and the reason they wanted to get into Solano was it was much more efficient than Bitcoin in processing transactions. So it was energy efficient and faster. It could do something like 65,000 transactions in the time and with the energy that Bitcoin used to do seven. So, um, yeah, that tech, that tech is there. Um, the question is whether it's, it's better than, say, the, the common dealing in fiat currency where you just, you know, you put in your credit card and there's a blip on one computer and a blip on another computer and the money is transferred. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. And we'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And we're back. And that... Nathan, I'm not sure if we answered your question or if you had a follow-up. I think Nathan is satisfied. Yeah, let me let me ask a very Samuel Bankman-free type of question here. I mean, does crypto, does the value of crypto outweigh all of its problems? I mean, we've talked about the risk, the possibility of fraud, the environmental impact, uh, losing money. All of those are drawbacks to crypto. Um, on balance, is there something that outweighs all of those problems that justifies going forward with crypto and, and with crypto even continuing to exist? Or is that something that just has to be found out as the future unfolds? So let me just dive in and, and say, I believe that the value of crypto does outweigh the risk, but I do think that a lot of that value is in the future and that it's a technology that could provide an alternative to fiat-based currencies, which could become very valuable if, for example, the dollar becomes less stable than it is and also enables uh, 
you know, already it's very useful for things like international uh, money transfers. There are definitely uses for it. And I think one thing that's important to recognize is that some of the risks like money laundering, um, the use by terrorists and, and uh, you know, bad actors has been quite overblown and has been shown to be actually a very small portion of, of crypto. And the long and short of it is the day traders may win, they may lose, but the real value of investing in stocks and bonds is for the long haul investing your retirement or whatever else over the long game. And you're suggesting that the same is true of crypto, that the people in the bubble that were running up and down before are working their way out of the game. The real issue for the serious investor is the long game. That's exactly right. That's my view on it. And I still think that there's some really interesting and powerful technology um, that hasn't fully come to pass yet. There are some current uses and there is a lot of promise on it. But sometimes people get a little bit too excited about it, um, and uh, it may not. Some of the uses may not be ready for prime time. We went through the same evolution with the internet when it started, and people were jumping in without any idea what they were getting into, living through the bubble. And now look at it, where so many of us live and breathe by the internet. Let me turn it over to Robert from San Francisco. Robert, welcome to Your Legal Rights. Oh, thank you for hosting this great show. Um, I. I'm curious from a human interest point of view and from a case study point of view, if this were a case study at Harvard Business School, let's say, or Stanford, uh, as to how does somebody who's roughly in his early 30s get to be so rich and famous so at such a young age, is it? And how did he get connection to all these wealthy celebrities and investors? Uh, because this could be a takeaway as far as how anybody markets a legitimate business. Did he have connections through his parents, who's taught at uh, Stanford University, or uh, you know? And then he had these multiple homes and a home in the Bahamas. And uh, so I, I am curious, how did he get these people? It reminds me a little bit of We Work and Andrew Newman, and then he did a great song and dance routine. But it was really the company was really built on a weak foundation. He got a lot of backing from. Masayoshi son, the owner of SoftBank. So uh, I would love to hear, I'll, t- I'll take the answer off the air, but I would love to hear your commentary. Well, fortunately, we have a graduate of Harvard Business School with us. Chris Everly, you want to take that? Um, thank you for this call, Robert. I, I, um, you, you hit on some things that we had, uh, uh, we're talking about in our, in our, in our pregame. There's a, there's a there's a lot to uh, to uh, unpack here, but um, um, okay. So, how did he end up with you know this this level of uh, of connection and and access? And I think look, this is a this is a guy um, who grew up in a a wealthy and connected family, right? Both of his parents are uh, big deal big deal law professors, ironically, um, at uh, at Stanford. Right. And so this is somebody that that grew up in this, um, you know, massive uh, surrounded by by massive wealth and access in in, in Palo Alto. And his if, if my understanding is correctly, his first entry into crypto was um, taking, you know, relatively speaking, big, big chunks of money um, and just capitalizing on arbitrage. Right. Um, really quickly. 
you know, really quickly trading, finding, you know, finding some, some, uh, some gap in the, the price of a cryptocurrency on one exchange versus another. But, you know, when you throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at that, you can, you can sort of get, get more money really, really quickly. And I, I share that as the example because I think the, the, the issue with this, with this guy is sort of twofold. One, there's this, this power uh, of access and just kind of invincibility of, of the elite, right? This is a guy that, I'm assuming kind of got got whatever he wanted growing up, and and certainly they they had the financial means to kind of to 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 live live really well, right? And then he found these ways to seemingly like make make easy money. If you fast forward years to you know the heart of the whole FTX thing, right? He was he had this sort of reinforcing behavior of like oh. I'm super smart and I can go make, make money really, really easily. I have access to all of these rich people because of my parents and my background and in, in the, in this, in the circles that I'm in. And it's sort of, I think, um, I'm no psychologist, but, um, I think it, it sort of reinforced for him this sort of in, invincible thing that sort of came, came to bear where now all of a sudden you've got this huge company, you're leveraging your, your network and, and wealth to have all these huge people support it. And really what he did was, just get too far out over his skis and in, in thinking that he could get away with this. Like, Oh, I'm just going to move this money over here for a second, do what I've always done, which is place these crazy bets and profit off of it. And then I'll put these people's money back before they even realize. And I'll, you know, and I'll have the money. And I, and I really think it's a, it's a, you even saw it in, in the trial, which I'd love to hear. You know, I'm the only person on this, uh, uh, panel that's not a, not an attorney. I'd love to hear my attorney friend's commentary, but even in the trial, the fact that he took the state, the stand and wanted to try to defend himself. Like he just kind of, I think he just reinforced this like arrogance of the elite that they can kind of do whatever they want without, without consequence. And that just kind of, you know, it came back and bit him in the ass. And, um, in some ways I'm really thankful that that happened. Maybe it's a message and the way this happens so swiftly to him, maybe it's a message to people that you can't just do whatever the heck you want to, but, but boy, did it do some real damage to the industry and a bunch of people's, you know, lives in the process. You know, Chris, that begs a question. I'd like to bounce to Christopher Cook as a follow-up, but if crypto had been subject to regulatory controls like banks are, or as securities are, could these financial regulations have prevented the FTX collapse? Um, probably not. I mean, I'm, I'm a little cynical about it. I think what they would, it would have been a, a smaller loss because what regulations do is they tend to make, uh, they take the, a lot of the profit out and in exchange for that, you get a bit more stability. So for example, there was certainly a huge loss when Silicon Valley bank was bailed out by the government and then first Republic, but it wasn't dramatic, right? They, 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 purchased treasury securities and then interest rates went up and their treasuries didn't look that good. And then people lost confidence in them. So you can see a pattern here. People lost confidence in FTX for good reason. And they had a run on FTX. Now the difference is there's no bank examiner of the crypto industry. And so it went up very quickly and it went down very quickly. And that's a sign of the deregulated nature of the industry. So would, would there have been no, no fraud? There's always fraud. I mean, there's, there was fraud, you know, at Enron, there was fraud at WorldCom. Bernie Madoff was on the board of directors of the NASDAQ stock exchange and a governor and one of the inventors of the automatic quotation system, essentially the NASDAQ. And he was on the side running a massive Ponzi scheme. So no, I, I, I think that that, but so he was doing it 
as an example, in an unregulated aspect of the securities industry, which was um, hedge fund advisors and people like that used to have no regulation at all. And thanks to him, there's quite a bit of regulation. So no, so I, I think there, you know, if you're going to commit fraud. I mean, the thing we agree with Tam Bankman-Fried is he was a risk taker. And the way he got in a hole is they took big risks at Alameda, then they, and he got scammed by someone who was manipulating the unregulated crypto exchange that cost him hundreds of millions of dollars, which this came out at his trial. And so they, they saw the need to try and place bigger bets to get the money back. And they took it from the customers of FTX. And I would tend to guess like a lot of frauds, he was thinking he could put the money back and he'd make it back and he would take a big risk. So what does he do at trial? Trial's not going well. He takes the biggest risk a criminal defendant can take is that he goes on the stand and tries to talk people into thinking he, he wasn't a crook and you know you and he didn't have bad intentions and it, it did not work for him. But one thing you can say, he took risks. And that was very typical of Samuel Bankman Freed, right? I mean, he was driven by um actually an ethical philosophy called effective altruism, which said, you know, to, to weigh the probabilities, weigh the costs and benefits of everything. And if it's a high risk, but the odds are in your favor, take it, right? Redbeard, I know you talked about that a, a little bit before the show. Yeah. And, you know, I agree that SBF was, uh, he committed fraud. He's been convicted of that. But I tend to think based on his history and the kind of statements that he's he's made and just his overall outlook that he may be sincere about his ideology, that he's willing to take big risks, but he believes in his heart that he's doing it for a good reason. And maybe that's the case for uh, a lot of people who are committing fraud. But the effective altruist movement is associated with a utilitarian philosophy that you can um, – you want to measure the morality of actions based on whether it's going to result in the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. And that also involves taking uh, the expected value, meaning, meaning you can kind of guess what the probability is of doing some kind of uh, uh, taking some kind of risk. If you intend to do good, if that risk pays off. So I, I agree with the, the sent the sentiment that, SPF probably thought he could pay the customers back, that he would make money, and that he would be able to do great things for humanity if if he won. Uh, but he didn't win, and and so we'll never know. You'll know we'll never know if he had those if he had those good intentions or if he was just a crook. You're listening to your legal rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight we're discussing the complex legal arena surrounding cryptocurrency, the rise and fall of FTX. The Decline of the Western World, no, I didn't say that, and The Conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried with Web3 investor and consultant Chris Eberly, Burlingame Securities attorney Christopher Cook, and a man we know only as Redbeard. If you have questions for my guests, you still have a few minutes to call if you want to get a last-minute call in. Our phone number is 415-841-4134. If you are outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866 798 8255. You have but a few minutes. You don't have to jump into our conversation where we are. You can call with any question about cryptocurrency. You don't have to join us in the exact point we may be in our conversation. Dean? Yeah, you know, Redbeard, I, your remarks really sparked 
a, a lot of questions with me, and I'm wondering whether the problem here wasn't a crypto problem, but an ethical problem. I mean, you look at the people who were involved in FTX, Samuel Bankman-Fried, his parents both taught at Stanford Law School. His mother is a specialist in criminal responsibility, no less. Um, he went, He, you know, was around Stanford and then went to MIT. His second in command, Carolyn Ellison, her father was the chairman of the economics department at MIT, and she went to Stanford. And they had Rhodes Scholars on the on their staff and people who turned down Yale Law School to go to Oxford and so on. I guess my question is, is this an ethical problem? And if it is, what are these universities teaching their students? Chris Eberly, I know you've got uh, college-age kids, great kids, by the way, Um is there a concern about, you know, what these elite universities are now teaching, if anything, in the in the way of ethics? Yeah, and uh, and thank you, by the way. My my, my kids think you're you're pretty great uh, as well. Um, yeah, I mean, my you know, one of my daughters is is right now applying to to school for for next year, and and so yeah, for sure, this is this is top of mind. But you know, I think it's. We touched on this a little bit, and I think Robert was the caller's name that asked a great question about sort of how we how we got here. I touched, I touched a little bit on this in my response there, but to go a little deeper, like I think part of it is the the bubble that people are in in these these elite universities, right? And something that look, I I, I live in Palo Alto, California, right? So I'm, I like to think I'm pretty conscious of the bubble in, in which we live, and, and one of the things that you know, my wife and I are really fortunate to be able to do for our kids is to get them outside of the bubble, right? So we travel to other other places and spend chunks of time in other parts of the of the world and, and um, make sure that they get some perspective on what they have and what the rest of the world is is like. And I, I think what you end up with um, when you have people that you know maybe grew up in a bubble and then end up in these elite universities and then end up in a in a you know in a in a great job and maybe you know have sort of always had the you know the wind at their at their backs. Is you get that, like, you have a combination of that sort of, you know, immortality or invincibility kind of feeling, right? I can, I can do, do whatever I want to because things have always sort of gone my way, um, without the reality of even thinking about how it might affect other, other people. And, and so I think it's, I, I, the, the optimist in me wants to say it's, it's, it's less about like, what are these universities teaching our kids? And maybe it's the opportunity for universities to make sure that they're putting more well-rounded adults out into the world on the other side and making sure that they have programs that get these kids out into the communities and give them some perspective and some, and some empathy. And I, and I like to think that, you know, a focus more on that could have um, maybe prevented some, some of these things, but I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it does get into sort of the intricacies and the power of, of Sam Bankman Fried and, 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 and what he did. I mean, all, all of that said though, I, I, I really agree with what, what Redbeard said. I mean, based on everything that I've said and, and heard, I actually don't think that Sam Bankman Fried was out to steal from people. I think he really thought that he could get away with borrowing this money, profiting off of it and, and putting it back without anybody noticing. And he got caught with his, caught with his pants down. But the, the fact that he got to a place where he actually thought that, that he could do that. So is so flawed and does speak to, you know, wow, somebody with that kind of education and background thinks thinks that we we really have a a, a, a opportunity, I think, to do better for the next generation. 
Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I do a lot of white collar crime defense and what we always find out and what I tell my students when I teach is that people don't start out with the intention of doing bad stuff. They cut a corner here, they cut a corner there, they get deeper and deeper and deeper in, rationalizing it every step of the way, and pretty soon they're in, way over their head. And that's, I think, where SBF wound up. I think every every big accounting fraud at a public company started out with they missed their their numbers or what was expected of them, so they convince a customer to take something on a seat with a side letter where they don't actually have to pay for it until they can sell it on to somebody else. And they think, okay, that'll that'll happen and I'll make it next quarter. And they essentially dig a hole. I did the first case I worked on over 30 years ago involved a bunch of tropical plant partnerships. And one of the tropical plants, and these were orchids grown in uh, Hawaii and Guam, died and they they hadn't insured it properly. So they had partnership number four, and they took the money from the number four people and put it into buying the plants to replace the ones that died for partnership number three. And they went up to like 11 or 12. So they just kept doing it year after year after year. And they never made enough money to, to fill up the hole that they'd made earlier. And that's very common in these types of frauds. I mean, the um, that's what I thought what had happened with Bankman Fried. He, he lost a bunch of money or his girlfriend and he lost money at Alameda, so then they figured they could borrow it, they could double down, they could get it back, and they kept digging themselves deeper and deeper. Then they lose some more money. And he he is a risk taker, and people like that, you know, especially as Chris points out, if you grow up on the Stanford campus, your parents have all these Stanford faculty members and guest scholars visiting, sitting at your dinner table, talking about all the great things you can do in the world, and, and you know, I, I think you think you can do these things and that and the ends justify the means because I'm I'm going to create greater good in the world. Right. And so I'm going to put the money back so it's not really stealing whatever you do to rationalize to yourself while you're still a good person. You know, mo most people don't think of themselves as bad people. That's what I think happened with him on a huge scale. But in the end, where is all this going? I mean, Let's say they had done it right, didn't cut any corners. Is crypto really an attempt to solve a problem that just doesn't exist? I mean, most of us don't use cash very much. Transactions are just uh, computer blips with a card that you don't even insert in the machine anymore. You just set it on top. Um, even the smallest of transactions are often done with cards now. Is there really a need for crypto? I think the answer is yes. And, you know, part of the need is evidenced by the fact that uh, millions of people across the world actually use it for various purposes. And the need can vary, depend on where you are. But people are actually using it for transactions and money transfers right now. But some of that value also is is almost like a fallback or, or maybe like a vision of a different future, a vision of a future where money does not depend on the backing of a government, but is more decentralized. And I think that there's still value in that vision of decentralization. And maybe, you know, 
you you might not be a believer, but it's still a vision worth believing in. Yeah, I I, t- I tend to agree. I'm also somebody that's you know that's been putting at least some amount of my energy into the the crypto space for seven eight years now. So you know, take it take it for for what it's worth. But I mean the the I guess the the point is, um, you know, yeah, there are there are a lot of people using crypto. There are a lot of people building in, in crypto. I think I think what the other side that we ha- we haven't talked too much about here today, the other side of uh, of what FTX SBF did that's problematic, um, besides the you know the criminal fraud stuff, which is kind of a big deal. The other side, when they pulled in all of these celebrities as 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 part of this, is they really played on the the speculative gambling access of, of crypto, the the idea that there's a use case for crypto, which is to make you rich, right? Um, that that ain't it, folks, right? So um, I think that you know I think the opportunity that that the crypto has continues to get um, uh, ha- have a hard time shining through when when these kinds of things happen because you know not to minimize them right these are big deal things but the people that I talk to every day that are that are working in this in this space are not they're not thinking about these kinds they're not you know they're not thinking about how to um, get more people to come gamble on, on something they're actually building on top of decentralized tech solving you know solving real problems in the way that people organize collaborate own all, all kinds of things and and you know this episode in particular we focused a lot on the currencies which make sense and the SBF stuff but there's also the whole other sort of world of, of use cases of building on de- decentralized tech which if you think about uh, it, from in my in, in my life so far I can't think of a period when trust in big companies and big tech has been lower right you think about what's going on at, at, at Twitter just as, as one example and so I think all the more reason to uh, invest time and energy in decentralized solutions so there's a lot there Um but we've, as an industry, certainly have not made it easy for our, ourselves with the sort of the things that have had a lot of focus. Well, we are running out of time, and I promised everybody I'd save a little time for their final comments. Who would like to go first? Redbeard, why don't you, why don't you start us off? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm a believer in decentralization. I think it has a lot of value, and I put my time and energy into building in this space for that reason. But I think that when something like the FTX scandal happens, the appropriate response for us is to look inward and see if we can do better. I think that it's time for people in the crypto industry to focus more on sacrificing their own time and investing their own money rather than sacrificing other people's money and other people's uh, livelihood. Um, And so I think that we can do better as an industry and we have to look for ways to do that. And like Chris Eberly said, sometimes that means not trying to frame everything in terms of a get-rich-quick scheme. Um, but I still think that decentralization is worthwhile, and um, I'm willing to put my time and energy into it and, and, and build something that eventually will have value, a lot of value for humanity. Chris Eberly, would you like to take about a minute? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I sort of in my in my last comment got, got a chance to share a little bit of what I was going to share in, in summary, which is just about all the things that are that that, that are being being built. And I, I would encourage listeners to spend some time looking at um, news sites like uh, CoinDesk and The Defiant 
and Blockworks, um, sites that maybe you have not heard of, but I know journalists at all of these places and, and believe that they are good and, and objective and writing about interesting things. And check out the projects that they're, that they're writing about. Check out information about the things that are actually being, being built. And I, I think, like I said earlier, this like we as an industry, and I love Redbeard's comments and totally agree. We as the industry need to do better. Um, but also, you know, it, it, individuals who are, who are curious, I would encourage them to spend time, you know, a little bit in the, in the weeds and, and find some interest, interesting things that are being built. And I, I, I assure you, you, you'll find that most of them are not about, um, you know, speculating on uh, coins you've never heard of or, you know, or pictures of animals. Who'd like to go next? Um, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. I think the question is, is there a value to crypto? Well, millions of people apparently think there is. And so they, I leave it up to them, whether you're someone in Venezuela and trying to mitigate the effects of a thousand percent inflation by using <clears throat> some, some other currency to pay for transactions just to get by, or um, someone who wants a store of value that isn't directly tied to fiat currencies because of economic diversification. There are a lot of people who have small amounts of crypto as part of their portfolio now, and that's something new. I think that that's for those people and they can find it. My advice as an attorney would always be to be careful what you're in. This is just an old story that what happened with F FTX, but it's a new industry. So you're, you're always going to get bubbles that burst. Sometimes they burst just because it's speculative. Sometimes it's pushed along or helped by fraud. I, I do think there'll be a retrenching in this industry. And some of the, if there are other bad actors, they will probably come to the surface and people will pull their money out of there. And there may be some more indictments or things like that. But I think that, you know, if it's valuable because people believe in it and there clearly to me seems to be a market for it, it's going to survive and it's going to prosper. And probably the best thing you can do is to study up on it and try and figure out who the good actors are that you want to be associated with. Dean Johnson, you want to take about 15 seconds? Sure. I, I don't think FTX should be allowed to ruin crypto any more than Enron and Bernie Madoff were allowed to ruin the stock market. Um, we need to get crypto back to its original mission that uh, um, Satoshi Nakamoto talked about when he invented Bitcoin, which is this is an alternative that people can have when they can't trust their governments, when they can't trust their banking systems, when they can't trust the official monetary system. And people all over the world need and should have that alternative. And if I walked away with one thing from this talk tonight, there's still value out there. Skip the day trading. Skip the day-to-day -day transactions with it. In terms of a long-term investment, there's still value here. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area, where we've revisited our discussion of cryptocurrency with our guests, patent attorney and crypto, crypto enthusiast we know only as Redbeard, Web3 investor and consultant Chris Everly, and Burlingame-based securities attorney Christopher Cook. And joining me tonight is co-host, NBC legal and political analyst Dean Johnson. Next week on Your Legal Rights, we'll feature our final landlord-tenant law broadcast for 2023 at our usual time, Wednesday night at 6. And best of all, we take your calls and answer your questions. Once again, thank you to our guests. And our thanks to all of you for joining us at The Controls. Joanne Marr, I'm Jeff Hayden.